Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad to be here today and especially glad to bring you a return guest, my friend Jamie Marich. And let me tell you a little bit, Jamie, before she jumps in. Jamie Marich describes herself as a facilitator of transformative experiences, a clinical trauma specialist, expressive artist, writer, yogini, performer, short filmmaker, Reiki master, and recovery advocate. What has this woman not done, right? She unites all these elements in her mission to inspire healing in others. Jamie began her career as a humanitarian aid worker in Bosnia-Herzegovina from 2000 to 2003. She taught English and music and freelanced. She travels internationally when she can, (laughs) teaching on topics related to trauma, EMDR, expressive arts, mindfulness, and yoga. While maintaining a private practice in her home base of Warren, Ohio, Jamie is the author of seven books on trauma that's so amazing and recovery and healing with many more projects in the works. Jamie is also the founder of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. Jamie, welcome. Rob, my friend, thank you for having me back. Well, you are, you know, you're like, well, I don't want to say you're like Miss Trauma because that would be like, wouldn't sound right, but you certainly are one of the more articulate and healthy people that I know talk about trauma because, you know, I know some people who write great books, but they're a little crazy. And you're actually a reasonable (laughs) human being who can talk about this in reasonable ways. So I always love having you here. What's going on with you, Jamie? Oh, what's going on with me in this day of the apocalypse, right? (laughs) Which we Mm. find ourselves. Well, I mean, what's going on with me right now? And I think the, the official reason that I'm here is to talk about my new book, which is actually a reboot of one of my older books. So, uh, revised expanded edition of trauma and the 12 steps. Now that's an interesting topic because, you know, I've been working on prodependence and now I'm being asked to, to sort of do a prodependence in the 12 steps. And I'm curious how, when we write about things, like we come up with concepts, how they end up meeting the 12 step world. Is that something you expected or how did it end up there? Well, when I wrote the original book in 2012, it, it came out of a lot of feedback I got from attendees at trainings that I did and, and conferences because I'm somebody who exists between both worlds. I, I work a 12-step program myself, uh, and I also am highly trained in mental health and trauma. And I noticed that a lot of the people who mentored me and people I hung out with in the trauma world really kind of had a, um, a low opinion of 12 Steps. 
Hmm. often for good reason, because of some of the problems that can exist. And in the 12-step world, especially some of the first few treatment centers I worked at, uh, there was this real hesitancy to, to go there with trauma. Or, or even mental health, period. Correct, yeah. And kind of the short-sightedness of both perspectives mystified me, hmm. because when I came into my own personal recovery, I had a sponsor who became a mentor who really got both. And she worked with me through both lenses. And it's always been something where we, we need a both and approach to, to working with any kind of recovery. And so when I would teach, uh, people would give me the feedback that you do a really good job of bridging the gap, you do a good job of really emphasizing this both and and it just kind of struck me one day, I, I really need to do a book on this. And that's what happened. Now, I have a question because trauma survivors generally, and I understand some running into this with prodependence, when you say Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Sex Addicts Anonymous, you're talking about a behavior that you want to eliminate. But I know that, you know, and I spent a little bit of time when I was younger in Incest Survivors Anonymous. And I know, for example, or with Prodependence Anonymous, we don't want to eliminate something and you can't eliminate something like trauma. So how do you... And you don't necessarily want it to go away. You just want to be less reactive to it. So how do you put that in a 12-step context? Well, I think the short answer is to transform trauma in some way. I mean, trauma means wound. Uh, anybody who's heard me speak on this, you got to listen to the shtick because I think this is the key to understanding it. That We love your shtick, Jamie Marriage. Thank you. Thank you. That, that the English word for trauma comes from the Greek word meaning wound. And just about anything you need to know about trauma is looking at that metaphor of the physical wound, that wounds can come in all shapes and sizes. Healing could take on different forms. Sometimes professional care is needed. Sometimes professional care is not needed. But the ultimate goal is that this goes on to heal adaptively or heal sufficiently so that it doesn't impair your life. And in many circumstances, it may actually help to transform your life in a very positive way. That's the construct of post-traumatic growth we talk about so much now that I've been able, speaking for myself, to have a very full life, I think, because I've had to enter uh, recovery. So I think where I'm really coming at with this work is realizing that the 12 steps themselves, I've never claimed that the 12 steps are sufficient for healing trauma, because as you've articulated, they're really there to, to work on the behavior at, it, at hand. Yet one of the things I find all of the recovery programs in the 12-step realm, at least those that are healthfully taught, is, is this idea of helping people work with daily lifestyle change. Because that really is a common denominator that I have seen in so many recovery programs, not just 12-step recovery programs. And for a lot of people coming into trauma work from a purely mental health lens, I don't see that same level of commitment to these are the things I have to do on a daily basis. Because especially in trauma healing, there can be this tendency of, well, let me come in and in three EMDR sessions, it'll be better. Well, yeah, I mean, several sessions might help you improve, but it's not going to be the whole picture. It's interesting you talk about this, Jamie, because when I work with people in who have intimacy and sex problems, and they often say to me, you know, once they get past the, the major issue, like the most compulsive problematic issue, and they're, you know, six, eight months along, and they say, well, I'd like to date. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Let's figure out what healthy date. Oh my God, I can't date. I can't date for years. It's like, what people don't understand, it's in what they do right now, that is the shadow of what happened to them. And if you look at your daily life and the challenges you have and work through and on those challenges, you are working on trauma. And I think that's what you're saying. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's a big part of it for sure. But you understand what I like. I'm just saying that you, you don't have to just stay focused. I agree with you. I think just staying focused on the past 
is useful so that you don't have shame about why do I do this? Why do I do that? But you kind of have to work on the every day if you're going oh, to get sure. better every day and not just when you run to therapy once a week. I agree with you entirely. So what have you created? How have you kind of you know designed this so that it can be looked at in that way? So the original book was written with a dual audience in mind, uh, counselors or treatment professionals and sponsors. And just to be clear, the book is Trauma and the 12 Steps. Trauma and the 12 Steps. Yep. The revised and expanded edition. And I, I want to address a criticism I tend to get, and that is I do recognize there is a difference between professional treatment and 12-step meetings as they occur in the community. However, I see a lot of the same problems both places, which can be this excessive rigidity that, well, this is the way the steps worked for me, so that's just going to be the way that they work for you. Or this is the therapy I went to that fixed me, so you have to go see that therapist. Right. And I, I just think there needs to be a greater sense of, because this is what I love about the 12 steps. I mean, for me, they were always delivered in a way that these are suggested steps. These are not commands or edicts. And I think if you go to the heart of what was intended about the 12 steps, that they're suggestive only, there's a lot there. And I think there is a lot of flexibility in the steps and in the language in the, in the steps. Now, some of the language issues are problematic for modern times. But I talk about that in the book, how some people really struggle with the phrase character defects or struggle with the concept of powerlessness. But I think a good sponsor, yeah, or God, higher power for sure. And I, I go into that. And I think a good sponsor, a good guide, a good treatment provider will help people unpack what some of their hot buttons are in the steps as opposed to saying, well, that's the way it was written. I say this all the time. We have learned a heck of a lot about trauma since 1935. And it's our duty going forward to be able to weave in that knowledge. And, and you can still have a respect for the steps and the history of 12-step programming. And, and I think one of the ultimate beauties that 12-step programming tapped into is the power of, of one human being on the same path helping another. Community, they tapped into the reality that when people come together for healing, they do better than when they're alone for healing. Right. So just like we can heal in community, I think a heck of a lot of harm can happen in community too. And that's another aspect that I try to address in the book that, uh, for example, I have had concerns as an attendee at meetings over the years about some predatory behavior that can happen there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are turned off to 12-step because of experiences they've had at meetings. And if we're serious about helping the most possible people going forward, or the greatest number of people going forward, people who are in fellowships of this nature really have to take a deep, hard look and recognize, okay, so let's go back to trauma as wound. Another part of that metaphor is that if we don't do our own healing from the inside out, we have this capacity, metaphorically speaking, to bleed all over everybody else. And I, I know a lot of us are, are aware of the kind of slogan that hurt people hurt people. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of that because I think you really have to look at, again, the wound bit, <laughs> that it's really about people who haven't healed their wounds can contaminate other people. But Jamie, I want to interrupt you for a second because... You know, the argument against all of this, and I have to bring it up, is, well, everybody has trauma. You know, some people's mom left, some people's dad drank, some people's parents got divorced, somebody got hit. They don't necessarily end up having deep, enduring wounds, and yet others do. And, you know, the people who seem to do well don't understand the ones who didn't. And so uh, is there something, is there another piece missing other than what happens to you? 
Well, and I'll try to explain this a little better, that trauma is an incredibly subjective experience. And that's why it's shrouded in such controversy, like like the one you just mentioned. And, and I'll do my best to answer that question going back to the wound metaphor. You know, how is it two people might get the same scrape in the kitchen, but they might have drastically different outcomes? Sometimes it is simple biological vulnerability. Uh, because if somebody has an autoimmune issue, if somebody's immunocompromised, we all know what that word means now. If somebody isn't getting good nutrition, it may complicate the healing process. If that person's cut is in a place where there, there's a real vulnerability in the body, that can be different. If uh, proper treatment wasn't received at the time and an infection set in, it can go and complicate the process. And there are some other folks who can have the same cut in the kitchen and maybe their physical constitution is a little bit more supportive of healing. Or they're older and their body's healing in a different way or yeah. a whole bunch of things, right? Yeah. And the other issue is if things, if, if the individual experiencing the trauma, and this is either physical, emotional, mental, sexual, spiritual... If you have an existing system in place to cope with and assimilate and accommodate what what happened at the time, the trauma may go on and not be a big deal for you. Yes. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, when you have, I mean, I've worked with people who, you know, they had a really horrible experience in childhood, but for whatever reasons, their family was able to step up, embrace them, talk about it with them. And they seem to have a much... Uh, I think there's a saying, um, something like the pain of trauma is equally experienced by both what happens and and also by how it's handled in the family. Yes, which is my why my working definition when I'm asked of trauma is it's any unhealed wound. I wrote a blog years ago called Why Trauma is Not the Problem. And I did that to intentionally be a bit provocative. But what I meant by that is the wound itself is not the issue, is how does it get addressed? How does it get healed? And what is the existing system of, of the person who, who is experiencing it? And so, I mean, it's kind of citing something from the old school here. Uh, if, if you have any 12-step experience in Al-Anon or ACOA, there's that idea that don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel are the three unwritten rules of the alcoholic home. And all three of those conditions inhibit processing, inhibit healing. And so a lot of people end up just stuffing it down, stuffing it down, stuffing it down. And the other thing I'm going to say, too, is there's a lot of people who think they've dealt with their trauma or it hasn't affected them, but they really haven't. How would they know? <laughs> well, OK, there, there was there was a meme going around that I thought was brilliant several, I don't know, it was a couple months ago. And it said, if you're the type of person who says, you know, just sit down and shut up and get over it because I did, you clearly haven't if you're being that cruel to somebody. Because how a lot of people end up dealing with trauma is just to develop the gruff exterior that, you know, it didn't bother me, denial and all of this. So I think a lot of people think they haven't been affected because this is how they were taught to deal with it. You know, it didn't happen. Numb it out. <laughs> Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. So when we look to politics or public figures in general in, in the media, artists and stuff, we see narcissistic people, sociopathic, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of trauma and biological issues out there, but they're not called that. No one actually says, oh, this person's acting this way because of this. We just say, well, that's who they are. Yeah, I, I don't disagree on that. And, and I, I think where the big conversation has to shift here, and I've been part of trying to shift this for quite some time, is that trauma is more than just diagnosable PTSD. Trauma is more than just some of the things we think it is. 
again, trauma is any unhealed wound. That is my larger, broader definition of it as a humanitarian. And I've always maintained this, that traumas can come in different shapes and sizes. People can be affected in different degrees. I want to just say, Jamie, that I know people who get a splinter and it sits in their finger for months and they're like, oh yeah, that's my splinter. I got to get out one day. And there are other people who get a splinter and they can't do or say or, or anything until someone takes that splinter out. And there are different people experience the same stimulation, but for some people it's so reactive and so painful and for other people they're able to shrug it off. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can see two experiences in the same person. I'll give you an example. I don't know if any of your listeners can relate to this, but I will share that I was the child that was often told, you're so damn sensitive. You're so sensitive. You're so sensitive. I mean, I cried when I was five years old because they painted Big Bird Blue in the movie Follow That Bird. (laughs) And I think I was crying for about two or three days. And even at that point, my parents looked at me like, what is this child? (laughs) She's so emotionally affected by Big Bird. I mean, there's not a movie I don't cry at. I mean, a lot of my you know, who I am as a person is that sensitivity. And I think that has made me very vulnerable to getting emotionally injured. But it's also made me very strong. Because when I've learned how how to work with that emotional sensitivity, and and learn to be more responsive with it, as opposed to reactive, it really has turned into a superpower. And as sensitive as I can be, there are some other experiences that I'm like, what? no big deal. Like when the pandemic hit, I I also saw this saying going around, some of you lack the dissociative skills to survive the apocalypse and it shows. Can you please explain that? Yeah, that's me. Well, for example, and say what you will about this. I liked disaster movies as a kid. I found them very coping, very soothing for, you know, that- Well, Jamie, I grew up with the Poseidon adventure and towering infernos. Yeah, I, I love it. And so even when the pandemic hit, my, my business manager said, Merit, you've been preparing for this your whole life. And I, I mean, it was just kind of like, all right, this is what we're doing. Life's throwing us a curveball. Life's throwing me a lot of curveballs. So, um, and, and yeah, I've, I've had my moments where then the emotion of it has all hit me and I've let myself cry. But by and large, I think I have become a pretty tough, resilient person too, who can bear that splinter in my finger for a while if I have to, because life has taught me that. Mm-hmm. And life is like that. Life, it does not always accommodate itself to your trauma. Correct. <laughs> when you talk about the 12 steps and working through trauma specifically, I think about I'm powerless over, uh, my life is unmanageable, uh, I need to turn my life over, things, you know, I need to look at what I've done wrong and heal it or quit, fix it. How do those, how does that method feed into uh, the healing of trauma? Excellent question. Because uh, one of the criticisms is that it's not productive, step one, in the healing of trauma. And I'm going to give my response, but let me first start with the criticism. But if you could just say the step, because some people don't know what that is. Yeah. So step one is we admitted we were powerless over blank, alcohol, narcotics, sexual acting out, whatever it might be, and that our lives had become unmanageable. And a criticism that I often hear is it's not cool for us to be using this language of powerless with trauma survivors because trauma survivors already feel powerless. And what we want to be doing is promoting more empowerment. And I will explain how it was explained to me when I had a little under a year sober in a way that just totally made sense. Please do, Jamie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Admitting my powerlessness over alcohol does not mean I'm a powerless person. It's not saying I am a powerless wimp, a weak-willed wimp. When I say I am powerless over alcohol, I am admitting that the alcohol will win every time. 
I put it in my body or chances are very high. The alcohol is going to win. So really it's, it's waving the red flag of surrender, which I feel, especially from an Eastern perspective is very healthy. I think that's empowering. Yes, I do too. Knowing my own limits and what I can and cannot do is quite empowering. That has been my experience. Uh, For a lot of people, that's a trigger, and it's my great joy to help them work through some of that as a trigger, because I I truly believe that we can only be filled up with empowerment and the good stuff in life when we let our vessels be emptied of what wasn't working. And for me, that's what step one is about. And that's how I I try to reframe it. And I will say, and this is a, a big point I make in Trauma and the 12 Steps, if you struggle with any of the wordings and the languages, pick another word. And, and I'm the type of, of counselor and sponsor where I let people adapt language if the language that's written doesn't work. So another example of that is uh, step six, character defects. The phrase character defects is used, and a lot of trauma survivors or people who are struggling find that to be abrasive because I am defective is a common negative cognition that trauma survivors can carry. And something I learned in the program of, of Workaholics Anonymous, when I did, I, I always think this is funny, when I did some work in Workaholics Anonymous, <laughs> is that all a character defect is, is really a negative or maladaptive coping skill that you developed to try to survive at some other point in your life. And so what, what, what the WA text says is replace character defects with negative coping skills. And sometimes just making that simple switch up can completely change the ability of a step to resonate with someone and we can see what it's about. I mean, I say throughout my work, the steps were written in the 1930s by two crusty old white men and no offense to crusty old white men. I I love them dearly, but I, I think we have to be willing to update language with the times and a principle that I teach in trauma informed care is that there's always a modification and I support that And I think more people would be open to the 12 steps if we allowed for that. Yes, we still have a structure, but there's a flexibility and a permissiveness and an allowance in how we teach people that structure. And do you see people using this work in kind of like picking up trauma in the 12 steps and and writing from it? Or or do you think, do you more picture people going to support groups and meetings called, what would you call Trauma Survivors Anonymous? Is that what you would call it? Well, I I think it's a both and. in the rooms, you know, we have good friends and in the rooms, I know you still do a meeting on in the rooms and the meeting that I started on in the room, someone else took it over. Uh, we set up a trauma recovery meeting there a couple years back. It is not specific to any one 12 step fellowship. It's not a 12 step meeting. Um, but we simply call it a trauma recovery meeting. Uh, I have a template in the back of the new book that if you want to set up a trauma in the 12 steps meeting, you can. And it can be a forum where there's a friendliness to talk about 12 steps, but there's also an openness to talk about problems you may have with 12 step as well. And the fundamental guiding principle of such a meeting or such a gathering would be how can we support each other on this journey of recovery, whatever that recovery looks like for you. As for some people, it might feel more like addiction recovery. For some folks, it may feel more like trauma mental health recovery. And for some folks, it may feel like both. Uh, now, interestingly enough, in the fall, uh, my own company is publishing two ancillary resources, uh, a daily meditation reader based on the work of Trauma and the 12 Steps and a step workbook where we're taking people through the steps. And my, my colleague, Steve Danziger, has joined me for those projects. 
And uh, yeah, I'm putting out those supplementary resources with the blessing of this publisher, because I feel that the book is, is a good guide, is a good starting place for people to get these ideas moving in their head. But I thought a meditation reader and a step workbook would be important this time around, because some people need it broken down even further. It seems like trauma is a very complex topic. And from what I see in our field, uh, our mental health field, it, people make it more and more complex. <laughs> let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. Let's do it. And it really isn't that complex. And so you're breaking it down into bites that people can chew through, if you will, I think is really the way to go. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. Jamie, um, you've done so much work in this part of the field, both in the mental health piece and the addiction piece. And I think we're both aligned with the fact that addiction really lies in the mental health field, despite the need for support in, in the you know in the common world, in 12-step meetings and all that. Nonetheless, addiction is a chronic issue that shows up in people who, who experience it under stress, just like someone with depression or anxiety. Or What about trauma? Like, is it, does it also show up under stress? Does it also show up when people are anxious? Or does it just in their lives all the time? All of the above, both and, yes or. I mean, because of the subjective nature of trauma, you can see it manifest in so many different ways. And I'm, I'm going to the pandemic as an example, because it is probably the most recent example that, that we have, that you can have folks who have experienced a great amount of healing about some trauma, but this the situation that we've been thrust into that is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced, even those of us who are in the privileged best conditions possible, this is unlike anything we've ever experienced. That unknown can be potentially triggering, even if you have done a good amount of healing in your life. Uh, I'll give you, I'll, I'll just keep this example very personal, that one of my big cognitive distortions I've worked with over the years is I am trapped. And it's not really a distortion. It's it's just a belief that was put there because of unhealed trauma. And and I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of healing around I am trapped. And I was very grateful because when the pandemic hit, I got to this place of, yeah, I almost went into that mindset because I'm feeling trapped and cabin fevered in a lot of ways. And I was able to feel it for what it is right now and not necessarily go into those old scripts about it because I I had done some healing. And I I think a lot of times, this goes back to an earlier point, we may think we've healed some stuff, or we have healed it enough. We've healed it to uh, the level we're capable at that point in our recovery. And then life can throw us an absolute curveball, and it, it reveals some other layers. And so yes, stress or present trauma is a great revelator of maybe what is underneath that hasn't been fully healed. I'm getting this now because I just had some trauma show up the other day and I hadn't experienced it a long time. So I'm thinking, does this fit into her category? What she's talking about? I, you know, I'm a little clumsy, Jamie. Mm-hmm. I drop things. I knock things over. I, my husband would say, you need to be more patient. 
Mm. I just remember throwing my Legos at the wall when I was five because I couldn't get them to fit right. And I say, honey, I haven't been able to do this since I was five. But when I was growing up, my dad used to say, put that down, you're going to break it. And you don't know how to handle things. And you know, he'd work on cars and things, but I wasn't allowed to handle his tools because I was going to break it. And recently, you know, my spouse is sort of rolling his eyes like, oh, you knocked over the milk again. Oh, you doctor, you know, there you go. And I had to say to him, you know, you, I need you to stop saying that to me because that's how my dad talked to me. You know, it's like I never thought about it before, but when he was talking about me being clumsy and me dropping, he wasn't my father, but he might as well have been standing there and saying those things. And it wasn't that I minded kidding around about the fact I'm a little clumsy, but when it started to turn into, you know, I can never give you things, you know, you're always, but then it just feels like I'm that, that trauma reappears that I hadn't run into or didn't even know about for, for 50 years. And I think that's kind of what you're talking. You just never know when you're going to turn the corner and something from your past might hit you right in the face. And that means trauma is never fully healed, right? It evolves. It definitely evolves. Oh, wow. It definitely evolves. And I don't think that's anything we have to shame ourselves about because I can get into these loops of, oh, Jamie Nicole, you should be over this by now, or you've, you've done this work. When are you ever going to learn? <laughs> and I mean, the reality is, and I'll share a very personal story to, to speak to this. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty candid about what I go through. End of last year, I was feeling in a good place with life. Uh, it, it just felt like I was in a good place in my healing, good place in my recovery, good place with my career and all of this. And at the beginning of December of 2019, two things happened. I reconnected with an old college friend and we started dating. Mm -hmm. And another friend from college, a, a gay man who went on to be very close with me in my life and who was in recovery, died by suicide. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you, Rob. And both of those events plummeted me back to that 19-year-old place mm -hmm. where it, it was, I, I couldn't have predicted either of those things were going to happen. Right. And when they did, it, it just, it, it took me to some darkness. It took me to- The bottom drops out. It's like, you know, the elevator's yeah. going to plunge for a little while. And what I'm totally grateful for, and, and it does not mean all of my previous healing was negated, it, but this revelator, this whole idea of life being the revelator of what we need to work on, it, it, you know, I know how to embrace challenges now. My, that's what my recovery has given me. I wanted to say something about Jamie, and I know we need to finish up in a minute, but it's really related to what you, kind of a lot of what you're saying is about taking responsibility for what's happened to me. And, you know, when you talked about the 12 steps and you said powerlessness can be a difficult word for people who have had trauma because they already know what it's like to be powerless. And I think about all the people who say, oh, well, saying you're an alcoholic, this is just an excuse for all the things you did. And maybe if you're going to keep drinking, it's just like you're admitting you have this problem and that, oh, well, I'm going to keep doing it because I'm an addict. And I've always thought that was just not right thinking because when you say I'm an addict or I have trauma, you're owning it. It's yours. You Now, while I can't say, oops, I drank and I'm an alcoholic, oh, well, I can't say, I can now take control of my life because I know my vulnerabilities and I know my strengths. And now I can walk through life with more awareness, which is empowering. And so when you say to the trauma survivor, I want you to grab onto this, you know, for all it's worth, we're not saying so it will drag you down back to where you were when you were 12. We're saying so that you can learn how to conquer it every day, one day at a time, wherever it shows up. So I, I just wanted to reinforce that because I don't think anything about 12-step doesn't takes accountability away from us, but it really in, reinforces that idea that we are now super responsible because now we know these things and know, and knowledge is power, right? 
Yes. And this is where those of us who are guides, whether we be professionals, whether we be sponsors, whether we be friends to people in recovery, can help people frame it that way. That this is not about you making an excuse. It's about you that through that admission, you can take responsibility. And I would say the core thesis of the book, which has been the core of my work, was a teaching that A, saved my life and and shaped my world because Janet, the, the sponsor and mentor I worked with, when I first reached out to her, where I was living at the time, and the whole story of that is in the book, I shared with her what I called my life in chemicals. <laughs> I, I, I let her know kind of what had been happening the last several years of my life and everything that led up to that. And she said, Jamie, after everything you've been through, it's no wonder you became alcoholic. What are you going to do about it now? Mm. And I got to say that again, because it's so important. After everything you've been through, it's no wonder you became alcoholic. What are you going to do about it now? And in that piece of teaching, she validated me and then she challenged me. And we have to do it in that order. We have to validate ourselves and the reality of what's happening. That's what we do when we say, I admit I'm powerless over alcohol. And we have to validate each other that, listen, I'm hearing what you're saying. And after everything you've been through, it's no wonder. But what can happen on the trauma end of things is we tend to, to, to give people like it really kind of can be like an excuse or a pass. Well, it can become infantilizing. I mean, they can become less and less capable, make more and more excuses for themselves rather than being deciding to try to conquer things. I, I think we're both on the same page with that, and I appreciate you bringing this up. Well, Jamie, we, we have such similar views about all this because of our own recovery experience and our own trauma issues and, and our own success in living and negotiating a life past those things. But I have a, a kind of a funny question for you, and, and I maybe it's not a fair question, and I don't ask it very often, but I was watching one of my favorite, I don't know, pieces of art, I would call it, which is an amazing film with a woman named Hannah Gadsby, and it's on uh, Netflix, and it's called Nanette. And in that, she really speaks, you know, there's a comedy show she's got, she's filled the, the Sydney Opera House with people who come to see her, she's a famous comedian, but she moves into talking about trauma and and humor and survival in really profound ways. It's one of the most amazing pieces of art I've ever seen. Agreed. And I'm glad you <laughs> glad you feel that way. I make every therapist I've seen, every all of our clients have to see it. But one of the things she says, and this is what I want to bring up with you, is something that I related to so deeply and kind of struggle with it, but I think I'm going to stick with it. She says, you know, I've been through a lot of wonderful things and you see me on this stage and all these people and you think my life is whatever you think it is, but I will never thrive. I will do well, I will survive, I will be happy, I will be successful, but I will never thrive. And I thought, you know, I relate to that. I can have the things of thriving, I can have the moments, but there's a little child part of me because of trauma who just did not know joy for such a long time that I don't know that I'll ever know joy as an adult. And like that's part of what I have learned to live with. Um, I can have fun, I can have a good time, but I will never really thrive. And I just wondered about, because I heard her say that, I was like, yeah. I hate that that's it because that's in everything we're talking about, I can improve my life. I can make it better. I can date better. I can love better. I can, I can move away from my addictions. But the idea of thriving to me comes from the earliest sense that you're absolutely loved and adored from the very beginning. And, and I never had that. And I didn't have it for, and I can't go back and get it because I'm not four anymore. So on some level, I feel, and, and I know we parent ourselves, we take care of ourselves, take care of your inner child, all that. But I cannot do what a parent would have done for me when I was two, three, four, five, six. And that will never come back to me. 
And no matter how hard I work in life, I, I have to believe that trauma has scarred me forever and that there are some things that I can, I mean, I can achieve, I can survive, I can do well, but there are things I can love. But there are little pieces of that that will just never be there for me. And I wondered about that statement because you and I are so aligned. And when I think about I will never thrive, I wonder how that affects you. So here's how it plays out for me. I don't think it's an all or nothing thing because there are many areas and aspects of my life where I've definitely thrived. I mean, obviously, professionally and the quality of my friendships and the quality of my spiritual connection and spiritual practice, uh, where I do feel like the trauma has been transformed and I'm thriving, yet I can still struggle, as, as we've talked about as friends, in this relational part of my life in terms of romantic relationships. And a line I cite in the book is, is from a, a good friend of mine who's no longer with us. And she said, Jamie, I think our relational lives can be the last parts of our lives to truly heal because for many of us they were the they were the first parts to get wounded. Oh yes. And in and in so many ways I relate to like what she's saying and, and what, what you've said here that yeah I, I still have these very young parts inside of me. And they've 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 responded well to therapy and treatment and healing and all of that. But some days and I think some days are worse than others. Some days I can get into this funk of <gasps> My brain is irrevocably broken. <laughs> and other days, it's like, so what? I mean, you, you've you managed to, to adapt. And that's why I really like that word adaptive more than thriving. And that directly comes from the teaching of Francine Shapiro, who developed EMDR, that she says, you know, the purpose of all this healing is to help us live a more adaptive life. And going back to the wound metaphor, that if, if you were born with a major injury, uh, like I use an example a lot in my writing of a friend of mine who was born with one leg, she's never going to get her leg back. Something will always be missing in, in that physical sense. But what she has been able to do is learn how to adapt by using the skills that are available to her, the technology that's available to her. And I mean, I do believe she lives a full thriving life as a result. But it, it's so I, I really do get the sentiment of that teaching. But it won't be the same as someone who has both legs. Yeah. So, so I'll give you my metaphor about this, Jamie. And I say this a lot. So I'm sure I've said it on the podcast before, but I say this all the time. Life is like a track, right? And our job is to get around it as best we can. And that track has kids and family and relationships and work. And, you know, and most people get all the way to grandchildren or a happy ending or whatever it is at the end of their lives. And those of us who have the kinds of trauma that we have, we, we can get around that track too. But we might need a crutch. We might need a cane. I might need someone on either side of it to help me walk there. I will get around to everything else, but I just can't do it in the same native on my own, skip out there and make life work way that I think healthier people are able to. I need guidance. I need support and I need direction for all of my life. And that's okay. Once I, like you said, once I acknowledge that I'm strong. That is okay. Jamie Marich, I love you. I love your work. I love featuring you. I love talking to you. And I want you guys to know just really quickly that like those of us at Sex and Relationship Healing who've created free uh, connections and support for people with sex and porn addictions, uh, Jamie has a place online called Trauma Made Simple. And I refer people there all the time just to understand what is trauma? What are some basic things I can do about it? Where does it come from? How does it affect my adult life? You know, we talk about this word like it's some kind of mystery and it really isn't. There's a lot you can learn. And so I do refer you, all of you to Trauma Made Simple because Jamie's done a great job and a service of giving us this information at no cost. And I, I personally want to thank you for that, Jamie. My great pleasure. And thank you for the shout out. So let's say if someone wanted to reach you because they wanted to learn more about trauma in the 12 steps, or they might want to see you for therapy, or they might want to be in a group or something, how would they reach you? 
Well, the website you mentioned, traumamadesimple.com, we do have a contact form through there where, where people can reach out. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jamie Marich. My name, Jamie Marich. It's, you'll see it on the show notes. My company is called the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. That's a bit more of a, of a mouthful. So it's instituteforcreativemindfulness.com. But that links on Trauma Made Simple. And, and that is a good place to go if you are a clinical professional who's interested in, in further training. And I want to say again, if you want to have an, you know, just like many of you think I do a really good job of translating the concepts of addiction into readable bites in 10 books. I think Jamie does the same thing in terms of trauma, really making it digestible and understandable and relatable so that we can heal. And, you know, Jamie, you're a gift to all of us for that. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, my friend, for having me back. It's a pleasure. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.